As you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10, I would like to remind us of what the Bible makes abundantly clear, and that is that there is a war taking place. And I'm not principally talking about Ukraine, though that's certainly one manifestation of it. There's a deeper, more primal war happening, a war of cosmic proportions, a war of something for something more valuable than land or money or riches or honor. It's the war for the immortal souls of men and women. And this war is vicious. It has casualties. It has painful collateral damage that can last for generations. This war is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. You cannot escape it. Every person born is drafted into this war from the earliest of ages, and even the most elderly still battle. This war transcends national and geopolitical boundaries. It even transcends time. Paul speaks of this frequently in the language of battle using military-type wartime language. Sometimes he describes this war in other terms, like an athletic competition, which we saw in chapter 9, or in apocalyptic language about the revealing, the the revelation of a new age. Whatever the metaphor, the principle remains that there are dark forces led by Satan that seek to undo and condemn the church of God in every age. They seek to make us trip, to make us stumble, to make us not finish our race well, to make us tarnish the name of Christ before we exit this life. And when you add to that the remaining sinfulness present in our hearts, we find ourselves in a very dangerous position. Enemy forces outside of us tempting us to stumble, sinful desires within us seeking to sabotage us from the inside. The dangers are real. And so is the necessity of vigilance, of being on guard, of being watchful. But we do not remain watchful over our souls as though the fate of the cosmic battle rests upon us. That's the key difference. We've been united to a conquering Christ, and it is in Him, it is in communion with Him that we also shall be victorious. And that's where we're headed tonight. I'd like to look at our text, 1 Corinthians 10. We've been slowly working our way through this passage, the first 14 verses, and I want to read them all, though we'll be focusing on verses 11 and 12. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. For I, do not want you to, or, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, they sat down to eat and drink and then rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. 
We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is God's word for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you needy. Some of us are proud. Some of us are boasting. Some of us are not taking heed, and we are on the precipice with the potential of falling. We pray that you would make us to be a watchful people, that we would rely not on our strength, not on our gifts but only upon you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. By way of review, to catch us up where we've been, we've been working through 1 Corinthians, and we have slowed down to examine the front half of chapter 10 in a little more detail. And I've said previously that the front half of this chapter can be remembered with three E's. Verses 1 through 5, we see the Old Testament experiences. These were the experiences from the Old Testament that Paul used as illustration of significant theological truth. These experiences were like the Exodus, where God brought Israel out of Egypt by His mighty arm. The experience of seeing the cloud and the pillar of fire and drinking water from a rock, all of which pointed to the Christ who was to come. Then in verses 6 through 11, we see the examples. Paul uses the stories of the Hebrew fathers of the Old Testament as examples of sin that we ought to avoid. We've looked at the sinful desire, the idolatry. Remember the golden calf incident. Remember the grumbling, the putting Christ to the test. These are all examples of sins that we must avoid even today. And later in verses 12 through 14, we'll see the final E, and those are the exhortations. Exhortations to flee from sin and endure righteousness. But last week we stopped at verse 10, and so let's pick up with verse 11, where Paul says that these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction. And so the, these things happened that we might know something. What things, Paul? Well, we talked about it. Everything from the Hebrew fathers in the desert, the exodus, the, the manna, the quail, the provision of life-sustaining rock, the fiery serpents of judgment, the provision of a bronze serpent for their healing. All of these things, indeed, I would say all of the Old Testament happened and was preserved in its final written form in part that we might see and that we might know. It was written down so we might see. This, the word for example in verse 11 is a theologically significant word. You've probably heard it from this pulpit before. It's the word tupos or type. This is a shadow. These are examples then that reveal something greater that's going to come. 
And that's significant for us to see. These are not merely isolated individual episodes in the story of Israel. Rather, God is teaching us something. The Old Testament history teaches us patterns. It teaches us the way that God has set up His world to work. And significantly, it teaches us the way that God works in this world. These stories illustrate for us the nature of sin and temptation, the nature of cause and effect, sowing and reaping, the nature of righteousness and judgment, and most importantly, the nature of God. But we're not merely meant to see these patterns, we're meant to know something. These things were written down for our instruction. We could even translate it for our warning, for our admonition, for our encouragement. We're not meant to read the Old Testament and think of these stories the way we think about our favorite fiction or watch our favorite movies. They're not written down for our entertainment, nor are they simply written down for our encouragement that we might aspire to simply be more moral people. They were written down to teach us something, that we might recognize this pattern to see how the world works and then by faith change our actions accordingly. We're not meant to read the Old Testament and remain unmoved. You shouldn't hear these stories and say, well, that's interesting. I'm glad I'm not like them. In fact, that's kind of the opposite of the point. We read these stories and we should say, I'm really no different than them. And if there is any difference in me, it's not because of me. It's because God has wrought that difference by His Holy Spirit within me. It's not because I'm innately and fundamentally better or even different from the Hebrew fathers. And that's what we need to recognize in these examples. I'm just like them. I'm no better than them. I may have more education. I may have more technology. I may have more earthly comforts. And we can praise God for those things. But none of those things have fundamentally changed you for the better. Even with all of these earthly blessings, we still desire evil. We desire wickedness, just like they did. We grumble about God's provision for me. I'm still ungrateful for the things that God has placed in my hands. And what makes it all worse is the fact that we do have something that ought to help us. Something that they didn't have. We have the completed Scriptures. They didn't have the Old Testament to pull out and teach their kids from. They didn't have a Bible. And so what does that mean for us? It means that we have even greater spiritual privileges than our Hebrew fathers like the completed Bible, like the fullness of the Holy Spirit post-Pentecost, and yet we still sin just like them. We, of all generations, are without excuse. When we read the Old Testament, our mouths should be silenced. And if we neglect so great a privileges, like our Bibles, who else do we have to blame but ourselves? We sit with our full Bibles in our own native tongue, which many Christians don't have, 
We sit under faithful preaching and teaching. We have heads full of knowledge, and yet we go back to the same kinds of sins just like the Hebrew fathers did. We have even less excuse than they did. We have their examples. We have their stories. We have God's revelation. We have sound teaching. We have sound teachers and pastors, and yet we still choose foolishness. And yet, and this is crucial, the Bible doesn't just stop there. The examples of the Old Testament teach us more than the mere foolishness of men. It also shows us God's pattern of dealing with His people. You can't help but read the story of Israel and see that God is immensely patient. That He really is who He says He is. A God who is slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love. This is a God that does not delight in the death of the wicked, but wishes that all men would repent and believe. We see a God who is faithful to His promises, and it does our souls so much good to reflect on these stories of God's faithfulness, of God's character, and then use them for our instruction. We don't merely read them and then walk away and forget about them. We apply them. We use them. They're they're part of our arsenal as we wage this cosmic war. Paul says we are the ones on whom the end of the ages has come. We've seen the dawning of the kingdom of God in the work of Jesus Christ. We live in this perpetual state of Christ is coming back. He'll be here any minute. It could be tonight. It could be during the service. Some of you are hoping for that. And this age that has been dawned in the work of Christ is in that revelation that we see God's character on fullest display. It is at the cross that we see this patience of our long-suffering God come to fruition. Why could He be so patient with such a sinful people? Because He had a lamb that was going to come. And he was going to take care of it. It's on the cross of Calvary that we see the depth of divine love. It's at Golgotha that we hear of the power of Christ's mercy. And it's in the empty tomb that we find the greatest token of divine affection. These things were written down for your instruction. So let your mind linger upon them. Let your heart be moved by remembering how God has worked in the history of Israel. How God has worked on the cross so that you might be forgiven. Even though we so often choose foolishness, God chose you anyway. Christ was given the rod and treated like a fool so that we might be forgiven of all of our foolishness. Christ was forsaken that we might be embraced. Christ was put in the grave so that we might not be trapped by it. And all of this demonstrates, it it teaches us, it instructs us to see the depth of the love of Christ for His bride, the church. And so if you have not embraced Christ as your Lord, then hear of the depth of His love and be Be moved by it. Be instructed by it. Trust 
in this Christ. He is the fullness of God, Scripture says. The exact imprint of God's nature. And the only way to come to the Father is through faith in the Son. And so believe that you might be forgiven and restored in your relationship with God. And may we all be instructed by these written lessons and be reminded again of the depth of Christ's affection, His affection for us, His love for us, that we might be kept from temptation. In fact, that's where Paul goes next. Temptation. Temptation is the problem. It's the problem in Corinth. It's the problem for the church in every age. That's why Paul moves to a powerful exhortation in verse 12. Look at verse 12, and we see our first exhortation. It says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Therefore, Paul says, in light of all of this instruction that God has given from the Old Testament, in light of all of the connections that Paul has made to illustrate all of these principles... Take heed. It's an imperative verb. It's looking at you right in the face. It's talking to you and to me. And the verb is related to sight. He's saying, heads up, watch out, beware, be careful. Watchfulness. Constant watchfulness is commended. Vigilance in the Christian life is a crucial element of a thriving faith, and it's sadly one of the areas about which you hear very little these days. In previous generations, you would hear about the spiritual discipline of watchfulness. That is, the the practice of being watchful over your own soul, of being vigilant, being alert, It was a spiritual practice that was talked about just like Bible reading and prayer and meditation and fasting and watchfulness. There's a book that I've read that came out recently. It's called Watchfulness, Recovering a Lost Spiritual Discipline by Brian Hedges. It's very good. It's in the vein of John Owen's work on temptation or William Gurnall's Christian in Complete Armor, though it's much easier to read. I commend it to you. All of them, but especially the one that's easy to read. And he, he makes a compelling case that this lost discipline of being watchful over your own soul is so detrimental to the church. A posture of watchfulness in a Christian is a, is a careful watching of our hearts and our actions so as to assure that they both remain pleasing and acceptable to God. To be watchful is to be vigilant in the tending of our heart and our actions, lest we stumble, which is exactly what Paul is warning about here. Take heed, lest you fall. But why is such action necessary? Why is watchfulness so important? I'd like to spend the balance of our time examining this spiritual discipline and talking about some applications of it. I have five reasons why watchfulness is so crucial for a vibrant faith. A first reason why watchfulness is necessary is because of the danger of hard-heartedness. The danger of hard-heartedness. 
Biblically speaking, the heart is the core of who we are. It's the seat of our identity. Proverbs says we must guard it because from it flow the very springs of life. Which means that if our heart is tender, so will we be. And if our heart is hard, so will we be. And hard-heartedness is a, is a threat for any believer. That's why Hebrews chapter 3 warns against it. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I understand that passage is, is about more than individual watchfulness. It encourages mutual corporate watchfulness among the body, and yet such an exhortation implies and indeed assumes individual watchfulness. In fact, the, the author of the Hebrews uses the same word that Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10:12. Beware, take heed, be careful, watch out. And the point is this, without vigilance, our heart can be deceived. And once it remains deceived, it will inevitably become hardened. And once hardened, we will drift. We will drift from Christ. And drifting, given enough time, leads to impenetrable hearts. Hearts that have been calcified by sin. There's a terrifying moment in John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, where Pilgrim meets a man that is hopelessly locked in an iron cage. Pilgrim comes up to the man and he asks the man how he got into such a condition. And the sad man responds that he stopped being watchful. He said, I laid the reins of his life upon the neck of my lusts. I sinned against the light of the word and against the goodness of God. I have grieved the spirit and he is gone. I have tempted the devil and he has come into me. I have provoked the anger of God and he has left me and I have hardened my heart so that I cannot repent. Laying aside for a moment Bunyan's theology of perseverance, it is a terrifying picture to think that a heart can be so hardened that we believe we can't even repent. One kind of sin left habitual can leave a heart so calloused that it cannot even perceive another kind of sin. It, it ceases to be a tender heart, a heart that is keenly aware of sin. It is dulled to the sense of unrighteousness, blind to its own failings. It's terrifying. It should make us pause and take heed over our souls. And thus, hard-heartedness is a vital reason we must remain watchful. Second, a second reason why watchfulness is so crucial for the health of our souls is the danger of temptation. The danger of temptation. Think of the words of Jesus to His disciples in Gethsemane. He says, watch, there's that word again, 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watchfulness is necessary. There must be someone up on the ramparts looking out from the soul. And such a disposition of watchfulness assumes several things. It assumes a very clear sense of the danger of sin. A soul that is watchful knows that every single sin costs. Every sin is costly. There are no free sins. And isn't it true that we will so often play with sin because we forget how costly it is? We're like the dog in Proverbs that runs back to its own Vomit. We run back to the thing that made us sick to begin with. We forget the pain that it caused. We forget the heartache. We forget all of it. And we run back to the arms of the very sin that made us sick to begin with. Because we forget the clear danger. But we don't nearly need to remember the, the costliness of it. We need to remember our own helplessness. Our own helplessness. We do not innately have the power to rebuff all temptation. Why do I say that? Well, it's one of the reasons why Christ taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer that God would keep us from temptation. If we didn't need God's help avoiding temptation, why would He have us pray for it? We need deliverance from it. And so a healthy dose of humility, producing within us a keen awareness of our own helplessness, is vital. But don't stop there. We need to remember that God is not helpless. God is both gracious and compassionate. He is eager and willing to help. We have to remember both our helplessness and God's willingness to help. And both of those things help us remain watchful in the midst of temptation. So thus far, we need to remain watchful because of the danger of hard-heartedness and the danger of temptation. A third reason why watchfulness is necessary for a thriving faith is the danger of our adversary. The danger of our adversary. Many believers especially in the states, underestimate the danger of the devil. He's kind of this apparition floating around in their minds who just shows up maybe on Halloween night and then goes away. We we can go to movies and we can be absolutely terrified by the images on the screen or read a story and be terrified by the villains in the story and then be nonchalant about the one true villain. It's the opposite of the disposition that is exhorted in the New Testament. Peter says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. There's that word again. Be watchful for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We have a powerful, restless 
enemy whose single objective is to plant a victory flag in the soil of your vanquished faith. He wants to devour you, to consume you, to destroy you. Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, an interesting statement. Speaking of Satan, he says, we are not ignorant of his devices. That is, we're not unaware of how Satan operates, of his tactics. And the question for us is this, are you? Are you ignorant? Are you aware of Satan's methods, his subtlety, his cunning, his insinuations? Satan is not exceedingly creative in his tactics because he doesn't have to be. The same old lies that have worked ever since the garden and they're still working today. Question God's word, question God's character, and then entice with sin. There's always juicy bait on the end of the same old hook. Sometimes those tactics are so subtle that we don't even know where they came from. There's another scene in Pilgrim's Progress which is instructive here. Christian passes through the valley of the shadow of death, and at the end of it he comes to the mouth of a burning pit. And it says in that moment that one of the wicked ones got behind him and stepped up softly to him and whisperingly suggested many grievous blasphemies to him, which he thought had proceeded from his own mind. See, sometimes the fiery darts from Satan hit with a bang. But sometimes they land so softly that we don't even notice them. And if we're not watchful, we can become consumed before we know it. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I find my mind way over here where I never thought it would be. I didn't start out thinking about that. But a subtle little dart hits my mind, and rather than correcting it with the truth of God's Word, I kind of keep going down the path, and I find myself where I should never be. We must remain watchful because of the danger of our adversary. He prowls around ready to eat us, to devour us, to destroy us. Fourth, a fourth reason why we must remain watchful in our faith is the danger of spiritual decay. The danger of spiritual decay. Decay by nature, sets in slowly. You don't get a cavity overnight. Wood doesn't rot overnight. Rust does, metal doesn't rust overnight. So too does spiritual decay not happen immediately. It's slow, gradual. It's even imperceptible in the moment. It reminds me of the words of Jesus to the church in Sardis. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus said to that church, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. There's that word again. Wake up and strengthen what remains, for it's about to die. 
For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Their condition was clear to Jesus. They had a sparkling reputation of vitality, of being alive, of being vigorous. But they were in fact dead. They had a good name. They had a reputation for doing all the right things. They appeared to everyone around them to be strong and healthy. But inside they were dead. How many churches today are like that? Busy churches, always doing stuff, dead to the core. I fear how many churches are like that. But I don't fear that near as much as asking how many Christians are like that. Busy on the outside, but on the inside, just like the Pharisees, full of dead men's bones. Having the veneer of spirituality, but without the reality. The appearance of godliness, but denying its actual power. 2 Timothy 3.5 But we also see in that passage in Revelation 3, the antidote to their spiritual malaise. It's a series of imperatives. Be watchful. Strengthen the things that remain. Remember. Hold fast. Repent. The cure for spiritual decay, in other words, is repentance, watchfulness, renewed obedience. Spiritual decay is dangerous because it's the road to apostasy. It's usually a slow slide into unbelief. It's like what C.S. Lewis described in Screwtape Letters when he said, that the safest road to hell is a gentle slope, soft underfoot, without any sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. What What does this decay look like? There are many possible symptoms, but two of the more common ones are simply going through the motions and harboring secret sin. Going through the motions and harboring secret sins. Going through the motions is simply outward obedience without heart-level engagement. Reading the Bible every day, never once applying it to your life. Singing hymns loudly without ever thinking about Jesus. Saying prayers with your heart far from God. And harboring secret sin is to remain in a deliberate cycle of sin, to remain willfully in disobedience, despite the clear warnings of our conscience, the warnings of the Spirit, the warnings of the Word of God, and doing all of that while acting like everything is fine and I am righteous. These are bad fruits, and and, and many others must be avoided, and to aid In the prevention of such miserable conditions, we must remain watchful. The cure for such a condition is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, but we should all strive to prevent the occasion for such repentance to be necessary. 
I know Jesus forgives. But I don't want to go down the road of sin trusting on that forgiveness. I want to stay on the path of righteousness so that I don't have to repent. And that leads us to a fifth and final reason that we should remain watchful, and that is the sweetness of Jesus. The sweetness of Jesus. The, the, the previous reasons were more negative. This one comes from the other direction. We must remain watchful to prevent succumbing to all the dangers around us, but we also need to be watchful lest we lose something precious to us. We, may, we must remain watchful lest we sacrifice the sweet fellowship we have with Jesus. Or to say it another way, we must let the sweetness of communion with Jesus be the fuel that keeps us vigilant. Our hearts are hungry and restless in this fallen world. They are voids that are seeking to be filled. And if we don't fill them with communion with God, then our hearts will hunt for satisfaction in otherworldly things. There's nothing that produces a consistency, a vibrancy, a steadiness in the Christian's life than a believer who constantly fills his heart with the sweetness of Christ. And notice the difference in motivation. Some people can be really motivated to avoid all sin because they want to remain righteous. That's a very, very different motivation from someone who avoids any and all sin because they love Jesus and they want to enjoy Him. The heart that is full of Jesus, saturated with His love, finds little room for sinful desire. The sweetness of Jesus and communion with Him slowly changes our tastes where the things of this world grow strangely dim. They no longer satisfy. Do you know this sweetness about which I speak? Can you say that Jesus is precious to you, more precious than any sin that the world can offer? I hope that you can. I hope that your heart is so trained to the taste of communion with Christ that nothing in this world will satisfy your soul. And if you don't know that sweetness, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then I want to tell you why Christ is sweet. Christ is sweet because He became nothing for a sinner like me. He deserved glory, and yet He drank the cup of wrath that was reserved for me. He deserved praise and honor, and He instead became a man of sorrows, acquainted with much grief. Even though He was the spotless Lamb, He was treated as our scapegoat and sacrificed in our place. Even though we are careless, we're distracted, we're not watchful. Christ remained watchful. Think about Him in the garden. When all the disciples are asleep, He's over there praying. Not merely saying some sweet lullabies before bedtime. Praying so hard He's sweating blood. That's how watchful He is over your soul. And even now, He remains watchful such that no one can snatch us from His hand. He's ever leading 
living to be our high priest, watching over us, sending His Spirit to lead us and to guide us. That's why Christ is sweet. Even though I deserve bitterness, He gave me satisfaction. He loves us, even when we are unlovely. And this Christ stands ready to satisfy your heart as well. If your soul is thirsty, if you want to taste this satisfaction, if your heart has been hard, if you failed many times, if you have been overcome by temptation, come to this Jesus. He died for failed sinners. Sinners who failed to watch. He delights in forgiving His loved ones. He is moved to satisfy our parched souls. He ever lives to work on our behalf. That is why He is sweet. Trust in this Christ and in His provision. Hear of Him proclaimed in these Scriptures. They were written down for your instruction. Read of Him. Know of Him. Indeed, look at the picture of provision that He leaves for us at the table tonight. Christ has become the bread of life for us, sustaining us in all of our needs. His blood has become the cleansing flood by which all of our defilement is washed away. Trust in this Christ and be forgiven. And if you are forgiven, if you've been baptized... And join us at this table and have your heart filled up again by faith. If you're like the saints described in Acts 2, devoted to this teaching of the apostles, the written word of God, devoted to fellowship with the saints and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, then come, partake of this celebration meal with us. The sweetness of Christ is on display. And let the sweetness of communion with Him make you even more watchful, lest the sweetness of that communion be robbed from you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would take this time, that You would plant Your truth deep within us, that You would take these simple elements, that You would use them to build up Your church. Ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.